1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Food, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Eliza Weeks, one of the hosts of the channel, and I'm joined by my co host, Carrie Tippin. Today, we'll be talking to Roxanne Hard and Janet Wasalis about their new edition collection, co- new edited collection, <laughs> Consumption and the Literary Cookbook, published in 2021 by Routledge. Roxanne Hard is a professor of English at the University of Alberta's Augustana campus, where she also serves as chair of the Department of Fine Arts and Humanities. A Fulbright scholar, Roxanne researches and teaches American literature and culture, focusing on American women, right, American women writers, children's literature, and popular culture. And if you want, you can follow her on Twitter at Professor Roxy. Janet Wesalius is professor of philosophy at the University of Alberta's Augustana campus. In addition to her work in feminist epistemology, she's also published on philosophy and children's literature. Welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure speaking with both of you.
0: So when we first corresponded about doing this interview, I was all set to teach my third iteration of a course that I call The Literary Cookbook. And as it happens, Eliza was one of the most recent graduate students in food studies to take that course. So we weren't able to have that class and to have the students as an audience for this interview. Uh, But Eliza and I have a common interest in something loosely known as The the Literary Cookbook. So we were both really excited to see this collection come to fruition. so tell us a little bit about your academic and professional backgrounds. Roxanne, you seem to be coming from American Literary Studies. And Janet, your work is in philosophy. So how did each of you come to this intersection of literature and food studies? Yes, thanks, Carrie. Roxanne, so why don't
2: you go first? I, a long time ago when they first came out, was a big fan of Nora Ephron's Heartburn. And then following that, uh, Fanny Flagg's Fried Green Tomatoes. And both of those, of course, are novels with embedded recipes. So to my mind, those were definitely literary cookbooks in as they were literature and they were narrative-based, but they also included recipes that I could play with. As a graduate student, I read Susan Leonardi's germinal essay on, on recipes and reading um, in a Renaissance women's writing course, which was um, a lot of fun, but the most fun, of course, was, was the whole cookery part of it. So I have played with the idea of of literary cookbooks for a really long time, um, and and do think that these novels should be counted as cookbooks, and of course, as Leonardi tells us, um, recipes cookbooks are narratives. They 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 pull us in with stories and hints and suggestions, and and then we end up constructing our own narratives around them and in them as we are cooking the food that they help us to cook. So that's where it came from. Um, the project actually for me, um, began with the need to work on something that was fun. Um, I'm embedded in, in a, a longer <laughs> project um, focused on, on young adult literature that is, is kind of difficult and fraught. And um, this project was one that just sort of was a welcome break um, from the work that I was doing on rape narratives.
0: Wow. You know, the idea of something fun in food studies goes together really well. I've had more than one interviewee on this podcast make that same comment.
3: Uh, Janet, tell us about um, your kind of background. Yes, I can echo. Thank you for having me, by the way, Carrie. But I can um, echo what Roxanne said about coming to this because it was something fun. So uh, around the time uh, Roxanne suggested this project to me, I had recently had, you know, um, a, a child at home, so I was still a little bit in the world of, you know, co- cooking with a with a with a young girl, um, and also reading young adult uh, uh, literature with her. And um, I had uh, worked in uh, children's literature and philosophy before, which is a fairly for philosophers a fairly unusual thing uh, unusual thing to do. And when Roxanne started talking about this, um, I saw these immediate connections between um, at least a couple of um, uh, children's or young adult uh, books and um, recipes. And what really interested me about it is, uh, like many academic disciplines, philosophy is uh, interested in what embodiment might mean for a life of the mind. But uh, for a number of reasons, as a discipline, Philosophers find it hard to get into a embodiment, and when you look at, for example, um, things like cooking and eating and growing food and making food, well, it's all about embodiment. Wonderful.
1: You all have already sort of explained where the idea from the for the book began, but I would love to know what you see. Um, sort of what the need was for the, a collection like this and how you think this collection has contributed not only to literary studies, but also food studies as a whole.
2: Well, I, of course I did the legwork, right? Um, I've thought for a long time that that I, that I would like to be reading um, articles or book chapters about things like fried green tomatoes. And there's actually still a dearth of, of scholarship on that, that novel and on Heartburn. Um, although there's, there is work done on, on the movie. Um, so I was, I was just kind of curious to see if there was a need and there was clearly a need. And, uh, so Janet and I put together a panel for, um, the Congress of the Social Sciences and Humanities, the, the English Teachers section, which is, its acronym is ACUTE. Um, and we got, uh, some other nice papers and um, it looked like we would, we would have interest if we put out a call for papers. So we we moved the collection forward from there.
3: Um, and what I could add to that is for me, what got me really excited about this. Um, although, you know, I came with my own interests in, like I said, having having recently been, you know, cooking for a number of years with a child, um, and uh, philosophy and children literature, but Roxanne came up with the idea about consumption, consumption in the literary cookbook. And for me, what really drove um, my interest in um, this collection and working on this collection is on consumption. And the reason for that is because consumption is what uh, philosophers call a radial concept, meaning that um, there's a it has a central meaning about using up, for example. Um, but it um, also has it has all it's surrounded by all these other um, um, meanings and um, uh, metaphors and, and cognates that radiate out, radiate out from that central meaning like spokes in a wheel. And so that makes it for a philosopher, that makes it a really interesting concept to to deal with. The other thing that um, drove my uh, interest in it is that consumption as a concept is um, mostly most of the people who work on consumption are in the social sciences. And what I saw, what Roxanne and I both saw, I think, is that there's very little work done on consumption in, for example, the humanities. And yet, because it's such an enormously rich and um, slippery, and I say that as a, as a good thing, a, you know, a rich, slippery, uh, fertile concept, there was so little done in the humanities said it seemed like, oh, we've got to do this.
1: I so appreciate that you're really expanding the audience for studies like this and um, just looking at cookbooks in a different lens. And I wonder, maybe Janet, you could speak to this, um, who the intended audience of this book was, if it was primarily for an, an academic or scholarly audience, or if there was any thought put towards. Um, presenting this to might be a more popular audience to encourage home cooks or home readers to see these novels and cookbooks from a different light?
3: Well, I think Roxanne and I did uh, mostly pitch it toward an academic audience because we thought that they were the ones who needed to start thinking about consumption, especially um, especially people in the social sciences and also in the humanities, they needed to start thinking about consumption in a different way so that consumption didn't have this um, uh, primarily economic uh, meaning to it in the sense of using up resources. Um, That's not to say, though, that we didn't think that it wasn't going to be uh, popular or readable uh, for a non-academic audience. Um, I think what we both thought is that we wouldn't need to pitch it to an on academic audience, because uh, people who are reading, who are reading cookbooks—I mean, using them to cook recipes from—but who are reading them like they read literature, you know, taking them to bed with them at night, to uh, you know, for their for their hour-long reading before they turn off the lights, um, those people don't need any encouragement. Um, and if they see this book and they have a particular interest in um, House of Houses or Treme or Waitress, or for that matter, out of Green Gables, they're going to pick it up anyways, if you see what I mean. Like those people, uh, we don't have to pique their interest. Uh, The academics, on the other hand, uh, speaking as an academic myself, sometimes we need to be pushed to look at something in a slightly different way. Um, And that's what we were trying to do with this book. We wanted to um, show both social sciences, the scientists, that um, consumption, Is not exhausted or used up, uh, no pun intended, um, by uh, uh, their research, and we wanted to wanted um, humanity scholars to to look more closely at the nature of consumption um, in cookbooks.
0: That's well said, Janet. You know, I've I every time I sit in or back in the day when I used to sit in airport uh, waiting areas, it was always easy to find a cookbook reader who read cookbooks on their nightstand and understood my work. But it often takes a little bit more explanation mm-hmm. for, you know, my colleagues. <laughs> yeah. So, Roxanne, go ahead and tell us a little bit. Like, what is a literary cookbook? I have a definition that I work with, but I wonder what... Um, well, I like
2: your definition, Carrie, selection. but I will just say that it is awfully hard to pin down because because of the genre, it is enormous. If you start looking yeah. at novels and memoirs that have recipes and include them, there's that. Um, if if you look at children's books that talk about food all the time and maybe throw in a recipe, um, picture books especially will do that. Um, there's those. There's cookbooks that draw you in with narratives like Julia Child. Um, It's kind of funny because when I was looking at at Efron's writing about Cookbooks and the ones that she loved and the ones that she hated. She had a long relationship with Craig Claiborne's cookbook, and I think he's kind of insufferable. And I don't think he's he writes a literary cookbook. He he only has the introduction. That's the only narrative he offers you, and it's mostly name dropping. So um, so Claiborne annoyed me to the point where I'm just saying that's not a literary cookbook. Um, it's a good cookbook, although there's no pictures, and I'm kind of reliant on good pictures. Um, so that it's cookbooks that have narratives, and then when you think, you know, if, if you are if you're going to be loose in your definition of narrative, when I think about community cookbooks, which I know we're going to talk about a little bit later, but those fundraising cookbooks, they always tell a story. Um, I have a stack of those that I've gathered from aunts and my mother-in-law and my mother, and they come from different different communities and different aspects of different communities. Things like the Sweet Adelines, which was a women's choir. That was quite a popular sort of chain thing um, in the in the 1960s. And the Sweet Adeline cookbook talks, tells me a story um, in the recipes, through the recipes, but also in the little tidbits around the recipes. And so I think I think if there's narrative, if there's some sort of story and there's a recipe, any kind of instructions for cookery, then I think you've got a literary cookbook.
1: Well, diving right into the book, um, I'd like to ask, I guess, Janet first. So in the introduction to the collection, you focus on the relationship that can be built between a cookbook author and the cook, um, who comes to trust and cook in conversation with the narrator or the writer, be they real or fictitious. So what does it mean to be learning to cook from our favorite book or movie or TV characters? Is this an extension of reading or the entertainment process that we're going through, or entertainment experience?
3: Yeah, you know what? I think that it is uh, an extension of the reading or um, entertainment experience, but that doesn't really tell the full story. I think that um, when we're um, when we're uh, cooking from um, uh, a particular novel or a show or a musical that uh, that we've been very fond of, it's even more. It's not just about about um, entertainment, or it's about um, extending the relationship that you had with a character who speaks to you very deeply. Um, and so, and that's part of the reason why as well, if it's a well-written cookbook, um, and by that, I mean, if the, you know, if the recipes are really good and they help you produce something, um, spectacular, um, and nourishing, then that, that deepens the trust that you have with, the narrator in the book, or the um, TV show, or the the musical that it came that uh, that it came out of, and I think as well part of what makes these um, cooking from having a satisfying relationship cooking with a uh, out of a literary cookbook um, it it tells you something about yourself, and um, I think it's particularly powerful because it goes back to. Um, our earliest experiences of um, being nurtured by people we trust. Um, Cooking for and being cooked for is uh, very much a primordial experience. I know
1: that I always uh, feel sad when a movie or a show or a book is over. So I think the idea of being able to continue that relationship with uh a character is really a beautiful sentiment um roxanne do you wanna do you have anything to add to this question yeah Yes, I, you know
2: Janet talked about about the idea of trust, and it's kind of interesting because I still really love Heartburn, but Efron made a lot of errors in her in her recipes. Like some of them are actually going they're they're destined for failure if you make them, um, because she messed up and and nobody caught it. And they of course don't treat a novel the way they do a cookbook, so that things the recipes haven't gone through tests and and all of that in the hands of other cooks. So so that's kind of interesting to me that I still really like a book that I actually can't trust in terms of cooking. Um, the other thing I, I would say is that these relationships go on. So in terms of my own chapter on the Treme cookbook, um, I didn't actually pick that up until after the series was was long over. And and it felt like a way back into the series that I could actually cook the kinds of things that I had seen cooked and eaten on the series. So that was a connection that I I, I still enjoy making um, infrequently. I don't have access up here in Alberta to, to crawdads that well. So mm-hmm. So I have to be careful with with the recipes I undertake if I want good, fresh, local ingredients. And I think the other thing I would would add is that, and and I'll just take this outside of of consumption in the literary cookbook, just to my general practice, because obviously I collect a lot of cookbooks. And um, when Janet was talking about trust, I was thinking of the Barefoot Contessa, whose recipes are pretty much, you know, idiot proof. and always delicious. And and she just walks you through them um, with head notes and, and instructions in, in such a helpful way. And I was comparing that to Mario Batelli's cookbooks, because I have a few of his too. And since he was me too, I find I have a hard time going to those cookbooks um, and using his recipes, even though I really love Italian food and the way that he has guided me in making it. I don't quite trust Mario Batelli anymore. So...
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. And I I have some thoughts about the relationships between authors and cooks that we can talk about off camera later. (laughs) So in the dedication you write, uh, we most often learn to cook and hopefully learn to love cookery from our mothers. Uh, And this idea is certainly not original with me, but I think of cookbooks throughout time as fulfilling a need left in an inheritance gap. So when our parents are not of the same class as we are, or when our parents don't live in the same country as we do, or when they've all you know, died of the influenza, right? So uh, is the impact of fictional characters and trustworthy narrators growing to match that of our mothers or elders as we grow more attached to these forms of entertainment? Well, um, Janet, what do you think?
3: I think yes and no. Um, I think, let me tell you um, where where I really agree with you, is that, um, yeah, I think that um, because of for a number of the reasons that, that you've mentioned, there is sometimes an inheritance gap. I think about, um, you know, my own relationship with my mom, who is a fabulous cook, um, also um, a very practical cook because, you know, she always got food on the table for a fairly large family and still had time left over to make sure every year every one of her six children got a special cake. But my parents were also immigrants. And so, um, the relationship I had in terms of cooking was only with my mom and, you know, my grandmother lived in, my grandmothers lived in another country, for example. Um, But I also, so in that regard, I really, really agree with you. As to whether it's um, growing because we're becoming more attached to different forms of entertainment, that might actually be true. But I think that um, you can see, you can just see how the literary cookbook is growing by leaps and bounds. So it's not just that we've become um, more attached to different forms of entertainment. I think it's also that... Um, publishers and authors are beginning to see, oh, there's a market here. And so uh, there's more and more of these um, cookbooks that grow out of either a novel or a TV show. More and more of them are being um, published. And I'll I'll circle around to something Roxanne just said um, about whether these cookbooks are trustworthy or not. I mean, all the cookbooks that we deal with, that our contributors deal with in um, uh, this particular collection, they're all what I would consider to be good cookbooks, so pretty trustworthy. But that said, I know because, like I said, I had a you know a child at home until recently. Um, that there's a lot of um, cookbooks being published right now that um, are not trustworthy. What I mean by that is. Uh, They either don't have particularly interesting recipes in them or the instructions aren't very good. So um, I suppose that in part, that's a limitation between, or a limitation uh, and a difference between having a relationship with another person and having a relationship with um, a book that was published just to to make money.
1: I think speaking to the idea of, unique structure of recipes and trustworthiness Um, you all end the introduction to the book with a recipe in a very particular structure for an apple cake which is written in the same narrative paragraph form as susan leonardi's summer salad in that landmark essay from pmla so what was your intention for this recipe do you envision readers baking and consuming a warm apple cake as they devour the pages of this book? Or are you hoping to nourish their stomachs as well as their minds? Um, Roxanne, could you speak to that? Thanks, Eliza. I think, I think
2: both. Um, I started with wanting to give readers the same kind of recipe that Leonardi had done. I make her summer pasta every summer, multiple times. It is a family favorite. And in fact, I usually don't make it until my whole extended family, daughter and her husband and granddaughters and my sister and her husband and my nephew, until we're all together in the summer. And then I sort of, I make it a lot, but I make it different every time so that Sometimes it's very Greek oriented with feta and black olives um, for the, the people who like those things. And other times it will have green olives and capers and so on and so forth. So Leonardi gave us a recipe that, that, is absolutely switch upable, so that we can we can innovate and uh, as much as we want, and we still have something that's that's delicious, satisfying, and quite healthy. Because of course, you throw in all the summer vegetables you have to hand. So I wanted to do that, um, and my apple cake recipe is I don't even remember where it originally came from, but it it is it is that adaptable, so that um, you. I like to make it best with different kinds of apples so that you have different kinds of textures at the end. So you have some that basically turn themselves to applesauce and others that will stay firm. So a Granny Smith will stay firm and a Gala will will get quite mushy. So you have different textures in there. You can add nuts or you can switch it up and turn it into a blueberry cake. Um, And and serving it warm is wonderful. It's also a pretty good breakfast cake. So that was my intention, that readers would have something quick and easy. They could cook as they were reading about food, um, which, which tends to make people hungry and uh, there's no other recipes in the book as I knew there wouldn't be. Um, I, I would have liked that, but we didn't have space. And so that's, that's what my intention was, was with the book. I hope that people enjoy that apple cake recipe as much as I've enjoyed Susan Leonardi's summer pasta.
0: Cool. The, the, the collection is divided into three parts, textual consumption, Consumption and community and cultural consumption. And Jana, you've already kind of alluded to this a little bit, but talk a little bit more about that idea of consumption and all of its variations. Um, sure, you know
3: we and I we mentioned this in the uh, the introduction, but we human beings were were animals and we consume all the time. So we consume food, we consume oxygen, but we also consume uh, books and TV shows, and we consume advertisement and. Um, we consume uh, experiences like dining out at restaurants, all those sorts of things. And so um, in the first uh, section of this, uh, of this collection, um, when we're talking about textual consumption, at least for me, what I really focus on is um, uh, reading as um, a form of consumption. We didn't uh, talk about it in this book, but I know that um, Janice Radway, quite a long time ago, criticized this sense of, you know, reading is not consuming. And she was dealing with, for example, sorry, she was dealing particularly with um, how uh, women stereotypically are the consumers of romance. And um, I think she really argued against reading as consumption because You know, you are what you consume, and there was a sense that um, romance wasn't proper literature. And I suppose somebody could say that about um, um, cookbooks as well. And yet, um, it is really clear that um, if you look at uh, an author like Lucy Maud Montgomery, who wrote um, uh, Anne of Green Gables, which is a book that I deal with, she talks about being drunk on books, um, so this understanding that we are consuming books uh, are, is uh, is uh, by no means um, unusual. the second The second section is on um, consumption and community. And um, this is something that I really learned from looking at uh, the research on consumption in the social sciences. But of course, part of the way we form community, a very, very important way that we form community is through, eating together. It's through it's through breaking bread together. Um, I don't know, but I'm uh, for sure about you two, but um, I think most of us have the very uncomfortable experience of trying to eat a meal with somebody that we don't like or that we don't trust. And then you really begin to realize how Consuming together and consuming not just meals, although that is primarily what we're talking about in uh, section two, but, you know, consuming music together, consuming uh, movies together, consuming experiences together um, is really important to the the formation of community. And then the third, third section is on cultural consumption. And um, that has something in common, I think, with the second section about how we um, form communities through, through consuming together. But the, the, um, a third section deals more with how we also, uh, form communities through creating cultures together. And, uh, particularly in that third section, we really look at how, um, even if you're not born into a community, you can, um, have an experience or make common cause with uh, communities that are not primarily your own through, um, for example, cooking the way they do. So using to use Roxanne's example of uh, cooking like they do on Treme while living in Northern Alberta. Um, I, I would add in terms of textual consumption, and I'm not the first
2: person to talk about this. There's, there's a few articles that do, um, that talk about, Buying things like the Alice in Wonderland cookbook and giving using that as a way for readers of Alice in Wonderland to to further consume the original text to further consume the, the novel and 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 its sequels, so that in terms of of textual consumption, the cookbooks sort of enable that. Um, I think one of the the, the the fun examples is is the pies cookbook that is based on the first the movie and then the musical waitress um, because it is very very quirky and full of humor good humor and um, and the pies of course look amazing so so that idea of textual consumption that we get to keep enjoying the text whether it's a novel a film or a Broadway musical. Um, through these, these cookbooks. And, and as Janet said, that happens with the Treme cookbook. In terms of the other two sections, I actually have just recently combined the ideas that, that kind of hold those, those essays together in each, each section um, in a study of picture books that have recipes at the end. And I, I basically am arguing that all of these picture cookbooks aimed at children and their parents um, giving them a story, but also ending the story in a recipe or several recipes um, is a way to build community. And that's what these books, these books all seem to do one way or another, because it's, it's, it's even if it's just a family cooking, um, and consuming together, or a child and one of the parents cooking and consuming together, the extended family seems to come into play. So there's always this idea that, that upon a recipe, you actually build um, many, many greater connections.
1: Janet, your essay appears in part one, Curiosity and Consumption and Alice Eats, A Wonderland Cookbook and The Anne of Green Gables Cookbook. In this essay, you make a connection between the character's hunger for food and their intellectual appetite. Then you make the interesting argument that readers can participate physically and intellectually in these stories through cooking and eating with the cookbook. First, describe these literary cookbooks, and then, if you could, explain this character reader mind-body transformation that takes place.
3: Sure, Eliza. Um, So... Um, I'll just start with, um, um, Alice in Wonderland first. So, you know, um, curiosity is, um, a theme in Alice in Wonderland and, uh, it's connected to, it's always connected in, uh, that novel to her eating or drinking something. And more than that, um, Alice is herself described as a curious child. So, uh, when you get to the Alice Eats cookbook, um, it's really, it's a wonderful cookbook. And I'm just going to make a little personal aside here that in fact, Roxanne gave it to my daughter as a, as a Christmas present one year. Um, and it is a visually, visually rich book. Um, and you know, it's got, it's got like a section on how to have your own tea party with like, how do you set a table properly? And then it's got a section on tassiography, which is the, the art of reading tea leaves. Um, and the recipes in it are fun. There's a recipe for the mock mock turtles, um, um, uh, recipe. Uh, which you would think would be mock turtle soup, but it's not a recipe for soup at all. But it, it is mock mock turtles. In other words, they're tiny little chocolates with caramel and um, nuts in them. And I think that um, that 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 why children like that book is because we, of course, we humans we're embodied, and this book is this rich. Uh, visual, visual, um, feast and, um, the kinds of recipes that you can make from it. So the, the queen of tart tarts, um, all those sorts of things, you could make a lovely, um, um, tea party for little kids out of it. Um, that said, one of the interesting, um, about this cookbook is it is um, um, a cookbook for children because it's a children's book and yet the recipes are while they're totally reliable um, it would be really hard for a child to make any of those recipes without the help of an adult Um, then um, I'll turn to uh, Anne of Green Gables and then I'll pull the two together afterwards I mean in Anne of Green Gables if you've read that novel cooking and eating plays a huge role in that novel as well um and um and is not a very good cook but what's interesting is that the character and uh, the reason uh cooking plays such a big role in that book is because cooking and um uh, serving tea where for her friend diana where diana gets really drunk and causes all kinds of you know with lots of, uh, lots of ensuing drama. Um, but cooking in Anne of Green Gables is, for the younger Anne, it's an opportunity for her and her friend to play it, being a grown-up. And uh, later on, when she actually does, towards the end of the book, um, learns to become a good cook, it's a sign of adulthood. And like Alice in Wonderland, Anne is also a, she's not just curious about the world, but she's also curious in the sense of being an unusual child, and yet, just like Alice, uh, she she turns out just fine. She manages to um, overcome her, you know, early childhood clumsiness to become um, a competent young young woman. Um, and the Alice, or sorry, the *Anne of Green Gables* cookbook is also visually quite quite rich. Um, uh, so a feast for the eyes. It's quite beautiful. And it was written by uh, Kate Butler, who is um, the granddaughter of Lucy Maud Montgomery and is herself a a home economist. Um, But what's interesting about that cookbook is uh, the recipes are completely reliable. Um, A child could make them. Like I said, it's, you know, the recipes are written by somebody who has a degree in home economics um, and is obviously uh, taught. But in some respects, um, and I find I, my daughter said this, and I find this myself, is that it's a little bit disappointing as an as a extender of um, spending time with Anne because the, the tone of the um, instructions in the cookbook are so um, fussy and a little bit, uh, a little bit patronizing, which of course ruins what um, both of these cookbooks, um, are I think intended to do, but it's also what makes them attractive to children is that um, you know children are interested in um, growing up, in um, being able to explore their own power. And what part of what makes these uh, makes cookbooks attractive, I think, to children is yep, by cooking through these uh, cookbooks, they get to spend more time with Alice and more time with Anne. But also, just like the heroines, Alice and Anne, after they've successfully made a recipe, they feel empowered. They are, in fact, empowered. They um, have been able to show that they can do something quite grown up. They can feed themselves and eventually they can feed others. And that is enormously empowering. All the essays in this section are
0: about cookbooks that are connected in some way to another kind of narrative text. So your article has those novels, uh, Alice in Wonderland, Anne of Green Gables. The others have memoirs like Pat Morris' House of Houses and Michael Twitty's Cooking Gene. What does this section kind of tell us about those relationships between texts that are easily categorized as literary, like novels and memoirs, uh, and cookbooks? that Some folks might resist classing as literature. <laughs>
3: You know, I suppose um, it could tell us a lot of different things, but the thing that I really focus on is how um, some 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 literary works are considered literary, and then other kinds of literary works are considered uh, you know, lowbrow and consumable. Uh, and I mean consumable in this sense as 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 something uh, derogatory. Because, of course, anybody who, you know, loves reading and uh, loves to cook, like Roxanne and I do, um, sure, we enjoy the, uh, uh, the memoirs, like House of Houses or Cooking Gene. Um, but at the same time, the uh, cookbooks that um, aren't really literary in that sense, like, for example, um, um, the, the cookbook based on um, the musical waitress, right that's one of that's actually a cookbook that I just love reading and what I find funny about it is I didn't even enjoy the musical that much but i I absolutely love that cookbook and by the way, if you are looking for a reliable cookbook, a cookbook with reliable recipes for making pies, that's the one to that's the one to choose. So I think that what it tells us is that I think we need to Uh, recognize how uh, artificial some of our categories are between what counts as literature and what counts as pulp, so to speak. And, um, I mean, it's okay to make those kinds of distinctions, but we should just recognize that these are distinctions that we as a society, we as scholars have chosen to make, and there is not necessarily anything objective about them.
0: Oh, yes, about 70% of our class, the literary cookbook is what is literature anyway?
1: (laughs) So, part two, consumption and community, is less about the intertextuality and more about how cookbooks move in culture and communities or how the text of cookbooks gives evidence of the practices of communities. Interestingly, though, none of the cookbooks in this unit are what we call community cookbooks. They're all commercially published. So how does a cookbook like Mastering the Art of French Cooking from a singular author like Julia Child form a community?
2: It's a good question. Um, I think I would start with the the five essays in this section are all intended or were all written, intended, put together um, to both reflect a community that was already formed and to move a community forward. so in the case of child, which was a hugely popular book, I mean if you look at any of the the um, the extra texts that it intertexts that it has has inspired like like the movie and the blog post that turned into the book on Julie and Julia um, it's clear that the child's voice compels people to engage with her for extended periods of time as as they make her recipes um, and find their way to to do North American French cuisine. Um, so I have a nephew who was a very good cook at quite a young age. He still is, um, and he's interested in food still. And he and I made Julia Child's uh, Triple Chocolate Bomb, um, which was a, a day-long undertaking and one of the richest things I think I've ever put together or eaten. But Julia Child almost compels us to come into community with her and 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 to to try and cook emulate French cuisine as as best we can. Um, the the rest of the essays in the, in that ch- that chapter do the same thing. The Alice B. Toklas cookbook is a reflection of of the community that Toklas and Stein built in in Paris and. And then Toklas's work um, all the way through. I mean, her comments on the essays are far, or her comments on the recipes are far better than, than the recipes themselves in terms of compelling us to, to think about the community that those women forged and the one that we almost sample by proxy just by reading her, her book and, and making the recipes as we choose. The other recipes that are cookbooks that are talked about in that section um, were highly popular. So Peg Brack and Poppy Cannon and, and the, um, and the essay about the cookbooks in the cookbook author in India, who was coming from a, a place that, that people in given their, the times in, in, in which they were writing were mostly women and were looking for ways to, um, get to the end of it. The I hate to cook cookbook is is a pretty good example of people who are not enamored of cookery, but still have to feed themselves and their families. So um, they are part of communities, even though they are singular authors with actually quite popular cookbooks, um, popular for one reason or, or another. And again, I really did wish, I do wish that we had had somebody writing on a community cookbook because I do love those things, but we didn't get that essay.
0: Well, they're so different. And so I don't blame you whatsoever. I kind of think community cookbooks need their own, you know, they're not the same as, as commercially published cookbooks. They, they work differently and, and maybe they need their own space. Uh, Okay. But so the book ends with Roxanne's essay on Treme stories and recipes from the heart of new Orleans. And first we were curious to know how you became interested in the series and its cookbook. And then uh, could you expand on the idea of restorative nostalgia? which is a term you use to describe what the cookbook does by blending recipes and narratives about New Orleans and the show for its readers.
2: Um, I came to Treme because I was a fan of the series. I, as you noted at the beginning, Carrie, I am a thoroughgoing Americanist and have spent a bit of time in New Orleans, so gravitated to the series, um, loved it way more than The Wire, which was Simon's um, series before, before he did Treme. Um, and Simon and his crew actually... Love that city as much as as anyone. So it, it was lovely to to just to watch it and then to think about the food. I actually bought a New Orleans cookbook um, when the series was running, and was absolutely thrilled when when um, Ellie came out with with the Tremé cookbook. In terms of restorative of restorative nostalgia, um, because because the histories that 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 Ellie uh, weaves around each of the sets of recipes because of course he speaks in each section from the voice of one of the characters in the series and they're all fictional characters um, made up by Simon and all of his co-authors and and Ellie was also a food writer and a, a pretty good cook as well and a newspaper man and he was one of the consultants on the series so he he brings this narrative structure in, so it's like getting a short story with recipes in each of these chapters uh, and those stories are very much looking backward as I'm sure Ellie does and everyone else who who was a native New Orleans person and lived through Katrina um, through the levee failure that he looks back in, in a way that that it doesn't just darken his vision of of new orleans and what it is today it actually works to restore that new orleans in in ways that are still possible um there's no going home again they say and there's no going all the way back um before the levy failures but but there certainly is a way to to recreate a dish a meal a menu to support the the people who did this cooking before the levy failures and who are trying to get back there and do it again so to my mind, Treme worked, I think, really well for turning a, a wider audience's attention to what's going on in New Orleans since the levy failures. And, and also, the cookbook then continues to do that. So, you know, we might not watch the series over and over again, but hopefully a lot of us are pulling that cookbook out, um, making a, making a recipe, making some some beignet, which I make for my grandchildren quite regularly, and, and then thinking about a restorative trip to New Orleans where we can restore our souls with good food and good music, um, but also to help the city restore itself with, with tourists' money, frankly, once we can all travel again.
1: Hopefully that happens soon. (laughs) So part three focuses on the potential for cookbooks and cooking narratives to make space for voices that might not make it into our history books or common knowledge from nineteenth century hired cooks to the ancestors of slaves, New Orleans New Orleans fusion chefs to innovative residents of Appalachia. How can cookbooks help us to fill in the blank spaces that have been left by mainstream historical documents and teachings? I think
2: this is the section where politics really comes to the surface. Um, the, the the politics of of cooking and cookery and and what those cultural codes mean to, to a society, to a culture, to a particular community. Um, so the waitress cookbook is in there. Um, it, it's actually quite Southern. I, I was really taken with the manuscript and early printed cookbooks. There's a chapter on each of those that, that give us, uh, give us a glimpse backwards into, into where the things that we cook today came from. Um, my chapter obviously talks, talks about Treme and New Orleans and, and the levy failures and, and what cookery means in terms of, of, of putting a culture forward as, as something consumable. But of course, food is the consumable thing that is not used up. You just keep making these recipes, perfecting them as you go. The, um the books by Edna the, the the chapters focused on the cookbooks by Edna Lewis and Ronnie Lundy um, I found particularly wonderful um, I know that that both of these these uh, women wrote popular cookbooks but they're not widely known um, as in people up here in Alberta had never heard of them um, so when I put them out on my coffee table and people would look at them they'd be quite interested to see this this um, you know, th- this african-american woman who's cooking in in her traditions that go all the way back to the time of slavery and and then to this woman from appalachia who who is showing us just exactly how elevated this kind of cuisine is um, even though it's in, incredibly accessible and, and and tells stories just in where the ingredients come from and how they're put together in ways that are, are quite unfamiliar with with probably a lot of readers so i'm i'm really hoping one thing that comes out of this, this collection of essays is that, that, that it, our readers will go and find these cookbooks and, and buy them and, and use them.
0: Janet, what themes or threads do you see running through the whole collection between these three parts?
3: Well, obviously consumption, um, and I know that sounds like a, uh, an easy answer, but uh, I, I bring that up because, um, I, I mean, people would know that's going to be a theme just by looking at the title. But what I would suggest to uh, somebody who hasn't yet read the collection is that look at, look at the different ways in which uh, consumption is being used and talk, talked about in each of these essays. And it goes to show what, um, what a rich um, and uh, fertile concept consumption is. But I think the other two themes um, – well actually I suppose it's one theme with two subsections is I think it has to do with embodiment and uh, so the the theme of embodiment because um, cooking both because cooking has to you, you need a body in order to cook and you need a body in order to eat and that seems um, self-evident and yet you can really see uh, embodiment. Um, as a theme throughout the rest of the um, uh, or sorry, all of the um, essays in this collection. Because when we're uh, when some of them are talking specifically about race um, and when they're talking about children instead of adults and when they're talking about a lot of these uh, essays really have to do with women and their relationship to cooking, to uh, making food for others, to feeding others and to being fed themselves.
0: Roxanne, what do you think,
3: uh, as
0: far as threads running through the whole collection?
2: Well, (laughs) um, I think, I think the idea that, that these, these chapters and the cookbooks that they're talking about provide kind of an ongoing insight into aspects of culture that we don't think about immediately. So, um, the idea that, for me, just being invited into into the female space, the kitchen and and the kind of art that happens there, and the art that is is cookery, but the art that's also narrative and and cultural and political commentary, um those 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 kinds of things I think run through all of these essays. as Janet said, we have we have you know the essay uh, about from the the cook the Indian cookbook, we have um, Morris House of Houses. we have nadia hussein's uh, there's a chapter on nadia hussein's um cookbook book, Cookbooks for children. And um so I think that there's there's a good diversity um running through the book, but in at the end, they all kind of bring you into women's spaces, even in the Tremay Cookbook, which is um, kind of overrun with with the the super popular chefs, the superstar chefs that we see on Food Network all the time. But at the end of the day, um, Ellie has has placed us in in Jeanette's kitchen more than any other place. Um, and and it's it's women just doing their their cooking, things like the uh, the the section or the recipes on Merlotons. It's like this is not haute cuisine, and it is not high culture, but it is a culture that informs us and feeds us and, and, and actually kinds of powers us through our, our days and our lives.
1: Janet, what are some of the must-reads in this collection? Uh, which pieces seem to be making the most interesting contributions?
3: Yeah, you know what, that's a really hard question to answer, because I think that all of the essays are really, really quite strong. Um, but, so instead of saying what do i think the must reads are i'm going to talk about my favorites and my favorites are because i'm a philosopher i guess my favorites are um the papers that are in the in the uh first part of the collection um and i think they're making really interesting contributions because of the way they all variously deal with the theme of consumption so uh rawerda's uh um uh, piece on that Net- and uh, hussein's um cookbooks And she talks about what it's like to be uh, a brown Muslim woman in um, uh, Britain right now. It's very, very interesting. Um, um, Shan Yu's um, uh, work, her paper on um, fusion, um, fusion cuisine. And then she also, really interesting sort of way, she she performs her own kind of fusion when she looks at um, the Book of Salt by Truong and um, the cookbook, by Anita Lowe and the poetry of uh, the um, Vietnamese-Canadian, um, Kim Tu. Um, Kasparian, <clears throat> she's the one who uh, wrote the essay on um, uh, Moira's House of, House of Houses. And she brings in um, uh, Walter Benjamin, um, talking about the importance of stories. And then finally, I really also really liked and thought made a really uh, Good contribution is uh, Teelan's chapter where she combines uh, Twitty and Walsh and Tan. And she talks um, about, um, you know, racial heritage, but she also talks that she brings in um, uh, people's uh, sexual orientation. Um, that's not to say the other ones aren't also must reads, but those were my favorites. Those are the ones, the papers, when they came in, got me uh, for me, I really
2: enjoyed um, the glimpse of the 1950s, 60s that were afforded by the the readings of Julia Child, um, and that's Caroline Barta, and the Poppy Cannon Cookbook by Claire Stewart, Stewart and Catherine Kittridge's Look at the Peg Bracken Cookbooks. I enjoyed those. It was just like a step back in time um, for me. And the other ones I, I, I really enjoyed um, were the... Uh, the, the Savinsky's chapter on Ronnie Lundy's cookbook and Stamets chapter on Edna Lewis's cookbooks because they they just brought to the surface some cookbooks that I think don't get quite enough attention
0: what do you think are some of the gaps in the collection pieces that you wish maybe had come from the CFP or yeah that's how it's called <laughs> or um any topics for future work on literary cookbook
3: well of course is Roxanne already alluded, Carrie um we, um, the, the collection's chock-a-block right now, right? So we included um, as much as we can. Um, but I think in terms of like uh, topics for future work is that I think there should, uh, it would be really nice to see somebody bring together some of the work done on consumption in the social sciences into, um, and, and some of the work done not just on consumption, but also on food studies into uh, literary studies, Because um, we found talking just informally uh, with people, but also some of the feedback we got as we were putting this collection together, that those seem to be um, two two academic silos where people don't really um, talk to each other very much. So, for example, I remember talking to one person, a colleague in the social sciences, and when I was describing this project, he said to me, well, of course you're bringing in Marx and Um, Marx has quite a lot to say about consumption, Um, but a plethora of uh, uh, work has been published on Marx and consumption in the social sciences, so that's not what we wanted to do here. But maybe now there is um, a place to bring some of these two bodies of literature together. And then the final thing that I would say is it's not as if in this collection uh, feminism or feminist theory is neglected, but Uh, having worked on this collection, I can really see how, not just on consumption, but on the literary cookbook and uh, feminism, somebody could do a really interesting job on that, uh, the connection between the two, I think. Roxanne, what do you think?
2: I would have liked to have seen something, uh, seen a piece on on picture books that are also cookbooks. So I wrote it myself because that didn't happen. Um, I would like to see more work, specifically on the novels that include novels and memoirs that include recipes, um, where where the recipes seem an afterthought, but yet they drive the narrative all the way through. So going back to Heartburn and, and Fried Green Tomatoes, and actually the recipes in Fried Green Tomatoes are very good. So those are those are a couple of gaps that I would have liked to have seen more more of the 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 breadth of the genre taken up in in the chapters that we we got but uh, as janet said we have you know 16 chapters and and the book is full we came right to our word limit so so uh we did well um but i think that there's there's a lot of room ahead for people to add to this field
1: the term literary cookbook and the goal of the collection seems to make a firmer connection between the methods of literary studies and the texts of food studies through cookbook studies. Where do you see literary cookbook studies going from here? Roxanne, can you speak to that?
2: Well, I, I hope that more people take up novels and memoirs that have recipes as as part of them and are therefore cookbooks. I, I really do hope that um, Basically, alongside the manuscript cookbooks and the early printed cookbooks, um, the, the two chapters that we have are there, uh, more of those kinds of historical studies. And I think this is where the community cookbooks that that we've talked about um, could come into play that that the things done with those manuscript cookbooks, which was basically shared cookbooks, people adding adding more and more leaves to to a manuscript. Um, th- that the community cookbooks come come across as something like that to me. Um, I think that cookbook studies maybe needs to open up a bit in terms of of what we what it sees as cookbooks and I think that literary studies needs to open up a bit um to see what what is going on in the narrative structures of these different kinds of cookbooks.
3: Yeah, and, and Janet, I would just um, Yeah. Thank you. I would just echo Roxanne. Um because um I think that uh, there are um and and Roxanne mentioned for example uh, fried green tomatoes there are a number of novels that probably don't get the respect they deserve because they have recipes in them. And yet they're wonderful. They're wonderful novels. Um, Another area is exactly what Roxanne mentioned is um, um, community cookbooks. Um, I too have a collection of community cookbooks and uh, you know, in that collection, you can see every, every place where um, I've ever lived and some of the places where my mother has lived. Um, And there hasn't been a lot of literary work done on that. Um, the other thing that I would like to see, and this isn't uh, necessarily where literary cookbooks are going to go, but I would like to see my own discipline of philosophy uh, pay more attention to um, um, uh, cooking and eating and um, embodiment. And uh, the best way to uh, uh, get into that kind of, um, that kind of uh, topic is through literary cookbooks.
0: Well, can I ask as our last question, what other projects you're working on next, Janet?
3: Um, Yeah, right now I (laughs) am up to my eyeballs in um, a manuscript uh, dealing with uh, the relativization of reason. Because, of course, in my discipline, um, um, reason is the the ultimate arbiter. And what I'm doing, it's actually kind of uh, uh, related to what Roxanne and I were doing with uh, this collection. What I'm looking at are um, minor threads in the tradition of philosophy, um, most notably uh, feminist philosophy and um, religious philosophy. Um, because these are those are strands of philosophy where they um Relativize reason, and they give good arguments for relativizing reason. So, um, how this fits in with this um, this project that Roxanne and I have just completed is because once again, it's about not um, separating the life of the mind from the body in which that mind actually lives. That's fascinating, Roxanne. What are you working on? I am working on a extended study
2: of young adult rape narratives, um, focused on date and acquaintance rape. Um, and it is very much a cultural studies sort of project. Um, obviously, my primary texts are literature, all novels. There's hundreds of them published in the last ten years. Um, I think with Me Too, we have we've come to the place now where we can actually start to grapple with some of these issues. But of course, being a literary critic, um, I'm 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 really focused on the ways in which these texts let down um, their young readers. So, um, yep, it's uh, it's difficult. It was. It was the difficulty of the the project that really inspired me to work on cookbooks for a little while, but now I'm deeply back into the project and I think we'll, I will stay there until it's completed.
0: Wow. Yeah. Important work. Well, today we've been talking with Roxanne Hard and Janet Wasalius about their new edited collection, Consumption and the Literary Cookbook. Thank you both so much for joining us.
3: Thank you, Carrie and Eliza. And thank, thank you, you all for listening.